Hello. Hi, Mom. Everything good? Yeah. So what do you hear in this one that you think people would be interested in? The company is Reed Dogs, and the CEO is Luke Bonney. And I like a lot of things he said about the work he did with you and how helpful it was. For me, it got a little complicated. If I understand it correctly, he manipulates software to add additional features to software that other people are already using. Uh, I think that's about as good a definition of an API platform as I think anybody's come up with. What does API stand for? Application Programming Interface. Mm-hmm. But you've spoken with other CEOs, haven't you, that do similar additions to existing software? Well, I don't know if it's additions to software as much as he's creating a bridge to these health systems that the hospitals and the doctors have that when new startups want to build innovative technology, they have to hook into those things. Well, that's a very clear statement. I like that one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's go with that. Okay. This is The Bigger Narrative. I'm Andy Raskin. In this podcast, I talk with CEOs about their strategic narrative, one simple high-level story that powers success not only in sales and marketing, but also fundraising, product, recruiting, everything. And I'm thrilled to have as my guest for this episode, Luke Bonney, CEO of Redox. Anyone who dares to bring a new healthcare app to market is going to have to tie into the legacy systems that doctors and hospitals use to store patient data, what are known as EHR or electronic health record systems. Trouble is, there are tons of these, each with their own interface. So Redox has raised $95 million to simplify all that by creating a single front-end interface for all healthcare data. When I asked Luke Bonney why he first reached out to me, what he said was, We really feel like Redox is defining a new category when it comes to healthcare technology. So there was always this, hey, are we doing the hard work of helping our potential users and customers to really understand what is it that we do? It's not the next best version of something that exists. So that was one part. The other big part was it just became clear that the way we'd been describing what we do was super powerful and compelling, but also incredibly narrow. You know, we are the best at EHR integration and everybody's like, got it. And we were so far beyond that, the problems we actually solve. So we knew we really needed to build a larger framework to kind of escape the powerful existing narrative. Before we get into what the new narrative is, who's the buyer here? The buyers are companies that are building technology that need to use healthcare data to provide an experience to their end users, if that makes sense. These are tech companies that are building healthcare solutions that somehow have to tie into the health records, whether that's, oh, an appointment is being scheduled or whatever of the hospital that might use this technology. And you're the bridge for that. Absolutely. So what was it that the old narrative wasn't capturing? Before we get into what the new narrative is, what were the big things that were missing? I think the first thing is the the old narrative was all about us. The old narrative was Redox is the best in the world, the singular platform to help you do electronic health record integration. And it wasn't really about our customers or really in B2B, it's really got to be your customers' customers. So it was a very Redox to the world point of view. 
That was number one. And number two is the offering is just way broader than that. We needed to start super focused and super narrow, but we've always known it was going to be way bigger than that. So let's talk about where did you get to? The way we talk about it now is healthcare has fundamentally changed. Unlike previously, if you're a patient or a provider, you're free to choose. If there's a technology that doesn't provide you the experience that you expect, you're going to go elsewhere. And what that means is that the best technology companies today, they empower their teams to create whatever they can imagine using data from an across an entire ecosystem. So today's winners understand that they need data to drive composable experiences. So we call this composable healthcare. And it's really why we built Redox. So in this narrative, you're saying all this patient and doctor choice means you have to deliver more and more stuff, like more data, more features. And you can't build that all yourself while you're also focusing on kind of what makes you special. So you have to surface the stuff from other players, like hook into their systems. And the ones that can do this the fastest who adopt this composability mindset are going to win. Totally. 100%. I remember when we worked together, I learned that these healthcare technology companies have like entire departments where their whole job is one-off projects to integrate with hospital systems or other tech systems. Yeah, it's a classic example where what used to be a differentiator is now a drag. My goal is that every dollar you spend on an in-house engineer doing integration is a dollar that somebody who's using Redox is going to use to outcompete you. Because that engineer is going to be put against solving a truly differentiated experience. And that's a huge mindset shift for so many engineering organizations and product organizations that feels like the giving up of control. But all I can say is how do winners win? They put their energy and resources on the specific things that make them different and valuable. So that's the shift. It's that core mindset of composability. So how does Redox deliver on composability? What are some things that you deliver that make it so that people don't have to do these integration projects? I think a great example, one that I think many of us now understand is we have lots of customers that provide telemedicine solutions. When you actually show up, that clinician is probably going to want to be able to look at a summary of your clinical information, what are the medications you're on, what's your, you know, your medical history. So we need to be able to pull that from someplace. They're going to want to document what's the diagnosis, You know, what are the next steps, how are we going to treat you? And then in many situations, there has to be a reimbursement. What's your insurance? How does the reimbursement work? All of those are independent moments of data flowing back and forth between this telemedicine application and all these different legacy systems. That's a single customer. Imagine if you have dozens of customers. It's an ecosystem within an ecosystem. Just so people get the complexity here, Redox's customer that's building, say, a telemedicine app to get all this health and insurance data for just one doctor group, they have to tie into the health records and insurance systems of that doctor group. But now they want to sell their telemedicine app to another doctor group that uses different health record systems from another vendor. That's another integration project and so on and so on. My point is, if you want to solve that problem technically, cool, but that's going to take an incredible amount of resource. What you're really focused on is does the doctor love it and does the patient love it? Because if they don't, they're going to use somebody else. Let Redox mm. be that platform on which you compose those experiences. All these interactions you're describing, getting the health records, finding out there's an appointment, uh, sending literature home, all of these are API calls, essentially. And in this metaphor of composable healthcare, they can just sort of compose them into the experience as needed. Totally. Yeah. And where we're going is abstracting even a layer above that because behind the scenes, it's complex, right? It's 
It's what are the API calls? What's the order? Right, because I said each of those is an API call. That's actually not true. Each of those is maybe many API calls to maybe many systems. And so one of the coolest things I've heard you talk about Redux building is that in addition to just creating a single front end for all these API calls, you're actually bundling them up into named workflows that make sense to an actual human. 100%. So for example, to allow a patient to schedule an appointment, the engineer building, say, the telemedicine app can code one thing called, say, make an appointment for patient instead of having to code like, I don't know, 10 API calls that have to happen under the hood I think you call this API actions. I don't want the next kid graduating from college to need a degree in clinical informatics in order to build a healthcare application. (laughs) You know, so API actions are critical because that's the continuous problem that we focus on is how to make it easier to drive these composable experiences. This narrative about composable healthcare experiences, composable healthcare. How is it playing in the market and among your team? In the market, it resonates because it resonates through the lens of when we're talking to folks like, you're right. It is really hard to compete on experience. It is really critical that we're focused on how we differentiate. Totally resonates. I think where it's hard is change. For the engineers, maybe there's a group who comes to us and they've had a team working on this for years. They're saying, what do you mean? That's what I do. And I get that. That's that's tricky. Yeah, because Redux comes along and promises composability, but that's really saying, hey, you don't need all those engineers to do one-off integration projects all the time. How do you handle that? At the end of the day, it's all about, well, there's so many other problems that you could be going to solve that are really at that intersection of what is a unique differentiated problem for you to solve for your end users. Um, Internally at Redux, some of the most successful, passionate Redoxers are some that are struggling the most with reorienting how we tell the Redox story. I mean, the old story, it's like, do it in my sleep. And it works for a very narrow, very specific part of the market. So the response to your question is high resonance and change is hard. Yeah. I hear this from a lot of CEOs. We had an old story, an old understanding of what we were. I'm trying to broaden it. And that's hard for a lot of people. You know, salesperson has it down of how to close a certain kind of deal. And now we're saying, hey, there's another kind of deal or a broader thing we want to go after. Um, What have you done or what would you recommend doing in that situation? My biggest piece of advice would just be, if you're going to do it, it cannot be a secondary project. It has to be a primary company level project for everybody. It will not happen if it's not put up at the level of the deep psychological foundation of the company. That's number one. Number two is you, CEO, have to be all in. And I thought I was all in, but I wasn't all in enough. It took more of my own change and not just how I spoke, not just saying this is a big deal, but also saying at some point, If folks can't change to support the new narrative, you have to make the hard call. That's scary as a CEO. The hard call means maybe they're not, they can't stay in the, in the company. Yeah, that's exactly right. You you might have people that are otherwise great, but the narrative is so foundational and so critical that if we can't communicate using that narrative, it means you're not willing to change in service of what we need to collectively do as a company. And I get it. That's hard. But for me, at least. I can only sleep at night if that change starts with me. That's on me first. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the the last thing I'd say here, as a CEO, one of the hardest jobs is to know where do I delegate and empower versus where do I 
take the reins and lead directly. This is one where you need to take the reins and lead directly. And it took me too long to figure that out. When you say it took you too long to figure out, did you mean like after we worked together or before we worked together, both? I'm mostly talking about kind of during and after. I thought I was all in because I believed in it. But what I underestimated was how much work it was going to take. Work in terms of like doing what? Starting with how I talk about it in front of the whole company, talk about it with customers and prospects, number one. Number two, work in terms of training and enablement for anybody who's customer facing. And three is the literal change management. I mean, you said at the very beginning, Luke, this is not a marketing exercise. This is a company narrative exercise. And I had convinced myself that I was following your lead, but I underestimated the actual work effort and not just what it would take, but what it would take specifically from me, the CEO. Do you think there's anything that I could do other than saying, hey, it's going to be a lot of work um, that that could have helped you or, or other CEOs along that path? I haven't really thought about this, so this will definitely be a hot take. If you're comfortable connecting CEOs, you know, people who have gone through it before with people who you're working with the first time as, as mm-hmm. just kind of mentors would even be a strong word, but more yeah. like somebody who's done it and just has some more stories. Interesting. That's great. So working with your team was really fun. Like you guys have a really fun culture. Could you just go through the roles of the people on the team and how you thought about assembling the team? Totally. So First thing is I would prepare everybody on this podcast that Andy is no joke. He says you have five seats at the table and he means it. And he also means that you better show up every time, (laughs) which I loved and uh, very much appreciated. We had to reschedule a couple of meetings because not everybody was there. I should point out there's five seats at the table and one of those is the CEOs. So there's really four other tables. Okay. I fought really hard to have one extra seat and that was not an option, but that, that was important for setting the tone. So number one, CEO has to be there, has to be primary. For me, number two was marketing. Three was our our head of sales, just because so much of the behavior change we were talking about was in sales. Also, they had a product, Brian, because we were looking at this as not just a narrative in terms of how we message to the market, but a broader strategic narrative that's going to help us frame up and make coherence of our roadmap. And then James, our CTO and co-founder, for a couple of reasons. One is he is an archetypal user. You know, he's a technical user. So he brought a lot of empathy for the people we were trying to speak to. Number one. And number two, he's a my co-founder and CTO. And he wanted to make sure that his voice was heard because it's not just what we do today, but also making sure it aligns with the vision of, of the company. Those are the five people. And we lean on every single person. It was absolutely critical. There's always one person who's kind of like, sometimes I call it the naysayer, kind of very skeptical. I think James kind of played that role. I, I wouldn't say he was negative. It, I think he played an interesting role in keeping the narrative real uh, and not going too far into kind yeah. of marketing speak or something like that. Yeah, I would also just add, I think he has an incredibly high bar. He cares a lot about the integrity of our message of how we're perceived. I think in many ways, he was very sensitive to where there could have been sloppiness or ambiguity. Anything that was harder about the actual work itself, getting alignment among the team that was harder for you than you expected? What I loved about your process was how quickly we moved from, I'd call it like in the room to outside the room. Like I think it was only one or two sessions for us to get the core of it down. And then it was all about testing it and iterating. Yeah. And I love that. I think it was such a great reminder. It harkens back to just the lean startup, which is 
whatever lives in your head is only as real as once you run that idea into somebody else in the real world. So I, I love that. For, for me, the hardest part was the literal behavior change with everybody not in that room. Mm. The whole sales organization, yeah. the whole marketing organization, the whole customer success organization. For us, this has become a, even part of a broader change, which I would describe as kind of obsession around our customers' outcomes. Mm. What's now clear to me is one of the easiest things to lose as companies get bigger is a true market orientation. So for me, the way we talk influences the way we think, the way we think influences the way we act Yeah, in mass. And that's the real opportunity. You know, I have this fantasy where I get all the CEOs I've ever worked with together at some nice place in the woods, and they all share their strategic narrative, war stories, and advice with each other. I'm not sure if I'll ever get to do that, but I am definitely going to take Luke up on his suggestion of connecting CEOs I'm working with with those who have been through it before. And actually, Luke, there's a CEO I'm working with now who I think would love to talk to you. Stand by. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson and podcast cover art by Angela May Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee. Thanks to Luke Bonney, James Lloyd, Matt Matox, Brian Dunn, David Millsaps, and everyone at Redox. Special thanks also to Judy Raskin, Letty Rachitsky, Victoria Zenoff, Ann Randolph, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, the company story is the company strategy. 